0: Haggai chapter 2 we've been using as a text uh, scripture a starting point and uh, we uh, re- are reading or using the verses 7, 8, and 9 of Haggai chapter 2. It says I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations shall come. Now, this is talking about the rapture. I'll explain a little bit more about that as we go but he's talking about end time events. I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations shall come and I will fill this house with glory saith the Lord of hosts. Now if you've been with us uh, I'll remind you, if you haven't been with us, this may be new information to you. But at either rate, um, at the time that these words are spoken, uh, Israel is trying to rebuild the second temple. Solomon's temple was the first temple, and it was uh, filled with the glory of God at, uh, at the point that it was dedicated, and the presence of God was always upon that temple. But uh, because of disobedience on the part of Israel, they were uh, overtaken as a, as a people, as a nation, and uh, they went into captivity. And as such, the temple was destroyed. And then some years later, um, they come to the place where now they're going to be allowed to return to their land and rebuild the temple. And that's when these words are spoken. So God is saying, I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations shall come and I will fill this house with glory. At first glance, you might think, okay, well, he's talking about I'll refill the second temple with the same glory that they had in Solomon's temple. The problem with that is, and and that would be a legitimate uh, uh, assumption... If we didn't have any other information. But the problem is we do have more information. And the Bible tells us that when the second temple was built, rebuilt we should say. And, um, uh, and dedicated there were people, older people that saw, uh, that were alive during the first temple. Solomon's temple when it, was, uh, when it was built and in operation. And when they saw the dedication of the second temple they wept. Because they said that it was nothing. The second temple was nothing in comparison to the glory of Solomon's temple. So he can't be talking about the second temple then. I mean, if we just look at the results, God, either either uh, Haggai really missed it when he said he was speaking for God, or else this isn't the, what God was talking about. The second temple isn't what God was talking about, filling with, with glory. Well, there was a third temple, and that was Herod's temple. That was the one that was uh, in existence in Jesus' day. And the disciples were real impressed with that. You remember one day they were walking through the temple and the disciples were oohing and aahing and said, Jesus, have you ever seen anything like this? Isn't this such a wonderful place? And Jesus kind of scoffed at it. And the reason that he did was because Herod built it not for the glory of God, but for his own glory. He built it so that people could say this was, this was his place and it was called Herod's Temple. Even in in uh, Jesus' day, it wasn't called the temple of God, it was called Herod's temple. And that's a good uh, good description, a good name for it, because it was all about Herod and nothing about God. And as a result, there was no glory of God at that dedication. There was no glory of God upon that temple at any point in time. And Jesus kind of mocks uh, or scoffs at it and says, well, there won't be one stone left upon another of this temple. In other words, he's he's uh, he's recognizing that there's nothing to it because it's not for the benefit of god it's for the benefit of man and it was supposed to make people go ooh and ah at uh, the guy that built it rather than the one that was supposed to inhabit it well therefore if he's talking about filling the house, this temple, this second house or not the second house but if he's talking about building uh, the the latter house filling the latter house with glory if he's not talking about the second temple, if he's not talking about Herod's temple what's he talking about? he's talking about the church He's talking about the church. He's speaking figuratively about the church. Now where he says, I'll shake all nations and the desire of all nations shall come. The Bible says that the earth is groaning and travailing, waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. I believe that has a dual meaning, but one meaning that it certainly has is that it's waiting for Jesus to appear and for us to be changed into his image. So he's got to be talking about end time events. So the filling the house, the latter house, he's talking specifically about the state of the church when Jesus returns. Please notice that. And notice what he says. We'll start in verse 7 again. He said, and I will shake all nations. Anybody see anything that might be falling into that category today? Find me a nation that's not being shaken in just about every way possible. He said, I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations shall come and I will fill this house with glory. He's talking about the church and I will fill the church with glory. Now, folks, the church has been filled with glory in one sense since Jesus was raised from the dead. No question about that. But notice that he says, he speaks of filling the house or the church with glory in relation to what, uh, it, what we can point to and identify as end time events. So he must be saying that there's going to be a special glory at the end. I don't think I'm reading anything into that, do you? Otherwise, why would he attach these two things together? And I will fill this house with glory. Verse 8, he said, The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, we don't want to spend too much time on this, but I can't go over this without making this comment. Whatever you choose for this to mean for you, whatever meaning or significance you want to attach to that, please notice that God said, if Haggai is speaking as a prophet of God, if he's speaking on behalf of God, then God said the silver and gold have something to do with glory. At least end time glory. Now, I know there's a lot of the church world that says, well, God doesn't want you to have anything. Um, okay. So what's God doing? Is he thumbing his nose at us and saying, ha, 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 silver and gold is mine. None for you. What's he saying? He, as far as my interpretation of this is concerned, he's saying that silver and gold has something to do with end time conditions of the church. And he sandwiches it in between two scriptures talking about the glory of God. You know, it's an interesting thing. Can I take a little side journey here? You remember Rahab, the story of Rahab in the Old Testament? Rahab was uh, a prostitute in the city of Jericho. She's not somebody that you would think the Bible would say a lot about, but it makes two specific references to Rahab. It makes a reference to Rahab uh, being in the lineage of Jesus in Matthew, and it makes a reference to Rahab being in the hall of fame of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. So there must be something about her that we need to look at. Rahab is in the city of Jericho when the children of Israel are just about to come take possession of the city. They go to spy out the land. Joshua is in charge of the children of of the people of Israel. And so he sends two spies into the land. They go into Jericho. They wind up staying overnight at her house. I guess it would make more sense for strangers to stay overnight at a prostitute's house than somebody else's house. I don't know by experience. I'm just suggesting. I'm just, I don't know. (laughs) So the king finds out, king of Jericho finds out that they're there, that there are strangers in in the city. And so they send for them. And she hides them. And then she says to them, because I've shown you this kindness, I expect something from you, or I'm asking something from you. And what she asks for is this. She says, when you come to take the city, we know you're going to. We heard about you 40 years ago when God parted the Red Sea for you and, and killed the Egyptian army, the strongest army on the face of the earth. We've known about you for 40 years. We hadn't figured out why you hadn't been here yet. Well, 40 years earlier, the children of Israel... Sent 12 spies in and 10 of them thought they were grasshoppers in the sight of the people that had been afraid of them for 40 years. Folks, that's the way the devil works. He tries to make you afraid of shadows. Anyway, she says, we know that you're going to take possession of the land. She says, so when you come, remember me. I want you to save me. I want you to save my household and I want you to save everything that we have. She didn't just stop with saying, save me. She didn't just stop with saying, Save my father and mother and all the other people, all the other relatives that I have. She, did, she said, I want you to save me. I want you to save my family. I want you to save everything that we possess. Now, folks, stop and think about Rahab's situation. The headlines of the day, if you will, are that we are in big trouble because we've got the greatest army or the, the army that God is certainly with coming against us. We don't stand a chance. They've already defeated Egypt. God parts water for them and they go across on dry ground. How do you fight that? She's in the most dire circumstance that you could possibly be in. Not only that, but her house is on top of the wall. God has already ordained for that wall to fall. She's in the most dangerous place on the face of the earth. Literally, the most dangerous spot on the face of the earth. Yet she reaches out in faith and she says because I've shown you kindness here's what I want you to do for me. And that's exactly what God does. When the walls fall Jericho sends those two spies in to get a hold of Rahab and her family and all of her stuff and to save save them just like they promised they would. Don't tell me God's afraid of you having stuff. Don't tell me God's concerned about his people owning things. I'm sorry. I'm too far down the road to take that. I grew up with that in the Baptist church. I found that to be untrue where the scripture is concerned. So the silver and gold is mine, saith the Lord. The Bible says the cattle on a thousand hills belong to God. If you get hungry, just ask God to slaughter a cow. So, and I will shake all nations, verse 7, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. Okay, well if it's God's, who, why is it God's? Did he make it for the devil and his crown? No way. He's telling us the silver and gold is his because he'll take care of you. He'll provide for you. Folks, there's never been a time in my lifetime that has been more important to believe God for finances and provision. And as we said before, I don't see things getting any better as far as the world's concerned. I don't see anybody's promises coming true, do you? Thank God His do. So the silver is mine and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. Verse 9, the glory of this latter house, talking about the church shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. Now the only former house they know of is Solomon's temple. And that's when the temple was dedicated and the the glory of the Lord filled the house like a cloud. And the priest couldn't even stand to minister. Nobody could even get into the place. It was so filled with the glory of God, it encapsulated and, and included every part, every inch, every possible space in the building so that everybody knew it. And the Bible says, God said, that the glory of the latter house, not the second temple, not the third temple, but the church would be greater than Solomon's temple. The devil is the Lord of the flies. So what's he talking about? He's talking about the church, the glory of the church being greater than even in Solomon's house. Now, glory is a word that's, that we've talked about this a little bit before, glory is a word that's kind of difficult for us to, uh, to, d- to define. If you look up the word in the uh, original language, in the Hebrew language here in the Old Testament uh, and, and also in the Greek, it, it's, it's pretty similar and that is they use the word glory to define the word glory, which means it's one of those things I guess that you're supposed to know what it means without anybody having to tell you. The problem is none of, not many of us know what it means. Let me read the definition to you of the word glory. It means, it comes from the root word meaning to think, which means we're supposed to think something relative to the glory of God. But it means, here's the, here's the definition in Strong's Concordance. The definition of glory is glory. <laughs> As very apparent. In a wide application, literally or figuratively, objectively or subjectively, it means dignity. It means Glory. Or glorious. It means honor. It means praise. It means worship. Okay, well, folks, if you if you use that definition, Solomon's temple was not filled with any of those things. It, it was filled with a cloud. And the, the Bible talks about different ways that the glory of God manifests. In the Old Testament, it talks about clouds, it talks about brightness, it talks about a glistening. It talks about a number of different ways and, and different things like that. Uh, for example, when, uh, in, in the New Testament, when Jesus was transfigured on the mountain of transfiguration, Peter, James, and John saw that his, his appearance changed. He was white. He was glistening. He appeared, the Bible says, he appeared in glory. Well, okay, but the Bible says Jesus was crowned with glory and honor, and that's the only time anybody saw him shine. So it's got to mean something more than that, too. It can't just mean the appearance when things shine because the Bible speaks of the glory of God. It speaks of the glory of the church. It speaks of the glory of God in us. It's got to mean something more than that. I was praying not too too long ago, and the Lord said these words to me. Now, you judge them for yourself. I'm not trying to get you to, to go by my experience, but you judge them by for, for what you think they're worth. The Lord said to me that the glory of God is the wow factor. Because every time the glory of God manifests, whether it's in in appearance as a cloud or the brightness or whatever, everybody around wind up saying, wow, in some way or another, whether, whether literally or just within themselves, it's like, wow. When the glory of God filled Solomon's temple, it was a wow moment. Wow. We never saw this before. When Jesus healed the sick, it talks about the glory of God being manifest in Jesus' healing ministry. When he healed the sick, it left people astonished. The Bible says people were astonished. When Jesus taught the word of God, it was the presence of God, the spirit of God that was on that teaching. It caused people to be astonished. They said, we've never heard anything like this before. So it's a manifestation of God or the presence of God that causes us to be astonished or to recognize that it's supernatural in some form or another. I've got to be real careful about this because I don't want to just use examples of power because power is not the only part of God that should make us go, wow. There are times where we can be quiet in his presence that we go, wow. There are times where we reverence God, where we're still before him, that we should be going, wow. Uh, You know, this present generation has lost that. This present generation, the music of this current generation, all the things that are going is all about excitement. It's all about soulless stuff. It's all about feelings. It's all about this. Uh, they want to have a feeling of wow without the reverence of wow. Brother Hagen made a statement um, uh, many times, but uh, during the time I was working with him uh, in the early 80s, uh, he said that the Lord spoke to him and said, "If you, There's a move of the Spirit that will be lost if you don't teach it to this generation. Well, the, some of the greatest things that I ever saw, and you've heard me tell some of the stories and, and some of the, the miracles and the healings and different things like that I, that I've witnessed. Those were, were incredible, incredible things. But they always left me with a reverence for God. The greatest move of God that I've ever witnessed was in a room with about 2,500 people and there was such a stillness, there was such a quietness, there was such a, a, a heaviness. And by the way, heavy is one of the words that's used to describe the glory of God in the Old Testament. There was such a heaviness that came down on everybody, not a depressive type thing, but it was just a weightiness. It was like, whoa, Nobody needs to do anything here. This is all God. And then like you snapped your finger, like there was somebody on the platform that that orchestrated this, some unseen power, instantly all 2,500 of us began to dance in the Spirit. Well, folks, if you tried to organize that, you couldn't get it to work. But it was instantaneous. Nobody was planning it. It was like God was choreographing the thing. But so much of what happens nowadays is about this excitement. So much of what you see now and, and hear now about people talking about the power of God and, and people are, are, are handling it frivolously. I don't mean this as a criticism, but this is an observation and I believe it's a good one. You get so many people now that, are, that are, have gone from the drug culture into ministry and they didn't have a seasoning period and they're playing with the things of God and they're, they're, they're identifying it or they're, uh, they're, they're comparing it to times where they were high on drugs. I've got more reverence for God than that. I never did drugs. But I don't care how high you get on something. It's not the same as God. It's not the same as the presence of God. There's a reverence to the things of God that are, that's being lost in this present day, it seems. I was in a meeting one time with uh, T.L. Osborne. There were some other ministers there and other things that were going on. It was one of those services that just went. It, it, and, and it, uh, um, Well, it just. Okay, let me back up. There is a laughter in the spirit. There is a dance in the spirit. There is a, there is a, a, a holy hilarity. But always, always. When I've experienced those things, it comes to a point, and then it stops, and then there's the reverence for God. Where a lot of people make mistakes, in my opinion, is where they're taking it past that point and continue to push and push and push and push, and that gets into the soulless realm, the emotional realm. I was in a service where one of those things happened, and the people that were, um, well, it was the singers and, and the folks like that that were... Uh, they just kept pushing, they kept pushing, kept driving the people and, and, and past the point of, okay, let's see what God wants to do here. And then finally, they, uh, somebody turned to T.L. To Osborne and he said, well, if we're all through with the, uh, the uh, what's the word? I think he used the word frivolity. He said, if we're all through with the frivolity of the things of God, then let's reverence him for a moment. Well, as soon as he said that, something fell upon the crowd. For half the crowd, they got mad because he was ruining their party. But for the other half of the crowd, it was like there was the presence of God. Now, don't get me wrong; I'm not saying God does the same thing all the time, and I'm always suspect of meetings that go the same way every time, because God's bigger than anything anybody will ever try to figure out. How could a meeting? How could? How could meetings go the same way every time, over and over and over again? And and uh, isn't God bigger than that? Now, I understand that there are usual ways that, people, that God will lead certain people. I get that. Yeah, sure. But God wants to do some things different just to show you that it's Him. You know as well as I do, as soon as you think you've got God figured out, He'll come around some other way. You start believing God for finances and figure out how it's going to work. It won't work that way. It'll come around some other way. And that's just God showing you that it's God. But there's a wow factor to God. There should be a wow factor to everything that God does. There should be a wow factor to your Christian life. You and I should wake up every morning saying, Okay, Lord, what are you going to wow me with today? I, um, I, I didn't get this story firsthand, got it secondhand, so I don't know if I've got all the details right, but there's a family in our church that uh, they've got a, a, a son that's very gifted in, in athletics and different things like that. They've got him involved in everything. I mean, he's skiing, he's, he's uh, uh, playing soccer, he's doing, I mean, he's doing everything. This kid is booked up solid, loves it. I'm not criticizing anything, he loves it. I heard he woke up one morning, ran into his mom and dad and said, Mom and dad, what wonderful, exciting thing do you have for me to do today? (laughs) We ought to be that way with God. We ought to be that way with God. Turn with me over to, uh, to Romans chapter 16. Paul talked about the mystery where the glory of God was concerned. Now, a mystery is something that was once hidden but now revealed. Notice what Paul said. He said in verse 25, he's uh, he's closing his letter to the Romans. Maybe it should start in verse 24. He said, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now to him that is of power to establish you. Folks, the power to establish you, to ground you, to keep you steady is in God. That's the only place you're ever going to find it. Now, he that has to him that has power to establish you according to my gospel. How are you and I going to be established according to the gospel that Paul gave to us? Now, stop and think about that for a minute. Paul is telling the world, you're going to be judged by my gospel. My gospel is the only thing that's going to put you over in life. Folks, if Paul was to say that today, I'm not sure exactly how things were in his day. <clears throat> there were some similarities. Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he said, Should I have letters of commendation sent to you to prove to you who I am? And then he turned around and he said, Or should I get letters of reference from you to show others that I'm okay? He concludes that by saying, I don't need some epistle from somebody. You're our epistle. You're the proof of what we have and proof of our ministry. So Paul says, Now unto him that's able to establish you, has the power to establish you, According to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Folks, that was Paul's gospel. To, de- to describe to us, to reveal to us who we are in Christ. According, notice this phrase, according to the revelation. Here's what Paul's saying his, minis- his ministry, his gospel is. According to the mystery which was kept secret since the world began. But now is made manifest. And by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. Turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. (coughs) We'll start in verse 7. Paul says, Whereof I was made a minister, according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me, by the effectual working of his power. In other words, he's saying, God made me a minister, not somebody else. God put me in position... By his own power. Unto me, which am less, who am, le, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to make all men see, verse 9, and to make all men see. Folks, here's, here's the greatest need of the church right here. And to make all men see. Here's the greatest need for the church. And what we need to renew our mind to. And here's the greatest work of the church in reaching the world. It all comes down to the same thing to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world has been hid in God. Think about that. God had a mystery, He had a secret hidden plan. It's almost like there was a secret pocket that God had. And he kept his plan right there. And the devil didn't know anything about it. Let me prove to you the devil didn't know anything about it. Turn with me over to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We'll start reading in verse... Better start in Verse 4. He said in my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. That's what God wants you to believe in. That's what he wants your faith to be in is in his power. Not in some doctrine, not in some religion, not in some, some denominational position but in his power. He doesn't even want you to believe in your believing. He wants you to believe in his power. Now, folks, all of those things are right. Doctrine is right. We should have right doctrine. We should know what the Bible says to us. But the purpose of the Bible is to reveal to you God's power. Because if all we've got is to tell people, come, uh, well, what has the church done for so many years? Said, well, God wants to make you sick. God wants to bring tragedy in your life to teach you something. And it's a hard, hard road. But come give your heart to Jesus and be one of us. Man, that just sucks them right in, doesn't it? <laughs> On the other hand, you show somebody the power of God to deliver them. It's a whole different matter. So he said by the Holy Ghost that God wants us our faith to stand in the power of God. Howbeit, we speak wisdom among them that are perfect. Verse 6. Yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught. One translation says the dethroned powers that still rule in this world. The Bible says Satan is a defeated enemy. Folks, the devil is not your problem. He's defeated. Well, but Pastor Mike is defeated. Why is he causing me so much trouble? Because you haven't yet seen who you are in Christ and taken your authority to overcome him. Now don't get me wrong Once you take your authority It doesn't mean you'll never have any more trouble with the devil But it means you will always overcome the devil It means you'll always walk in victory over him Whoever heard of a championship sports team That never had to play a game That's what I think some people want in their Christian life I just want the championship trophy I don't want to have to play the season But the Bible Gives us more of a picture of because who you are in Christ, you outclass your opponent. And even if it looks like he's going to win in an inning or win a quarter or two, don't worry, you'll win the championship trophy. Stay in there, hang in there, play the games, fight the battles, do what's necessary, you will come out on top. And folks, you know as well as I do, the things we prize the greatest in life are the things that we work the hardest to get. You give somebody something, they'll think it's of no value. But they have to work for it. Man, then they appreciate it. Well, that's the, what the fight of faith is all about. So he says, "Howbeit, we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. He keeps talking about mysteries, doesn't he? Paul seemed to understand this truth. He seemed to understand that this was a mystery that had been kept hidden or secret from the world until he came along and got the revelation that he had. And that's why his message was so important. And that's why the devil tried to stop him everywhere he went. That's why this thorn in the flesh, which was persecution, was raised up against him because his gospel, the revelation of the mystery, was the key to success in life. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world unto our glory. Notice it says several things. It says God's hidden wisdom, his hidden mystery, that which was kept secret in him, not God tucking it away somewhere where it could be found, but in him himself, was ordained before the world began. That means before God ever made Adam and Eve. It means before Adam and Eve ever had a chance to fall. God knew what the plan was. He knew what was going to happen. He knew the fall was going to take place. He knew it was going to look like for a long time that the devil won. But God's plan was to restore man to what? He says it was ordained from, from the beginning of the world before the world began unto our glory. God's original plan was for you to be filled with his glory. For you to be filled with the wow factor of God. For you to be filled with his power, for you to be filled with his presence, for you to be filled with his goodness, his character, his love, his nature, for you to be filled with that which causes other people to look at us and say, "Wow, that's different." So it was ordained. Here this mystery was ordained before the world unto our glory, which, verse, 20, uh, verse 8, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 8, which none of the princes of this world knew. He's talking about none of the evil spirits knew. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Folks, do you realize that the devil would have had one simple way to keep God's plan from ever coming to pass, and that's just not crucify Jesus? It couldn't be God that brought about the crucifixion. It had to be the devil working through man. For it to be legal, for it to be legitimate, for it to be a worthy sacrifice. It had to be man's doing who was influenced and prompted and driven by the devil. So if the princes of this world had known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, eye has not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. Now what things is he talking about? He's talking about the glory of God well yeah pastor mike that's right i hadn't seen it Ear hasn't heard it we won't know till we get to heaven no 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 keep reading verse 10 but god has revealed them to us now by his spirit he's not talking about things in heaven folks the bible says that the heaven is the glory of god the bible says heaven is the place of glory there is a glory realm but don't you think that you're only supposed to enter into glory when you leave this earth God's already ordained you unto glory here, now. Now think about what that means. Ephesians 1, 7, I think it is, calls God the Father of glory. So the Father of glory sent the Lord of glory to the earth for the benefit of man who had been crowned with glory but fell from glory. For what purpose? To restore him to glory. Glory. That's the whole reason Jesus came. That's the whole reason Paul gave us the letters that he gave us. Because it's not just a matter of Jesus died to, to save you from sin. Please, please, please. Now when you say that, religious people will get all uptight and they'll puff up about this and say, Well, nothing's more important than being forgiven from sin. That's right. But the reason you were forgiven from sin was so that you could walk in glory. So much of the church is sitting back in the corner just saying, Well, I don't know why all these bad things are happening to me, but thank God I'm saved. And God's saying, wait a minute, what do you think you're saved to? We talk the the we, meaning the church world, modern day church world, talks about so much about being saved from. What are you saved unto? If there's, a, if there's a kidnapping, if somebody's been kidnapped and it makes a big news and, and everybody's talking about it, well, when they're released, thank God they've been ransomed or, or you know, bought out of something, but unto what? If their life isn't better than when they were kidnapped, what's the point? If you've been delivered un, uh, from something, it's because you've been delivered unto something else. Well, you've been delivered from sin, but unto What? Well, that's the part that most of the church doesn't seem to get. You've been delivered unto glory. Your life should be a continuous wow. Look what God did. Your life should be a daily wow. Look what God did. Let's keep reading. Verse 10 again. For God has revealed them to us by His Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things... Yea, even the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man save or except the spirit of man which is within him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the spirit of God. Now we have received, not going to receive, we have received not the spirit of this world but the spirit which is of God that we might know. Everybody say no. no. That we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. That we might know these things that are freely given to us of God. God wants you to know about His glory. Folks, glory is not something that's supposed to stay hidden. Glory is not sp- something we're supposed to sit around saying, wow, I wonder what the glory of God is. The glory of God is something you need to experience. You're supposed to experience in your daily life. Whether it's healing, whether it's supernatural revelation from God, whether it's financial provision, Whether it's a prompting to say the right thing to the right person to help somebody else. It's the glory of God. Every day should be a wow factor for you. Or there should be a wow factor to every day of your life. Maybe that's a better way to say it. So many of us are just trying to get to the end of the day. Is that what Jesus saved you for? So you just try to get to the end of the day? So many Christians are just trying to get to the end of this life. Oh, when we get to heaven, it's going to be so much better when we get to heaven. Well, what do you mean by that? So much better. What do you mean? So much better. Well, there won't be any devil. Yeah, but the way you're talking, you're not going to have any victories to to recount. The Bible talks about getting to heaven and receiving rewards. I don't know exactly how that works, but it would seem to me that if you're going to receive a reward in heaven, then other people in heaven are going to know about your rewards. Doesn't that make sense? I'm personally convinced that a lot of people that spoke against Brother Hagin are going to get to walk around in heaven and carry around his crowns. All the people that said that he was of the devil and wasn't preaching the truth and all that kind of stuff. They're going to have something to do with him showing, look, here it is. I don't know about you, but I want victories. I at least want to have something for the Lord to say, well done, good faithful servant. Now, I'm not in competition with you to see how many, you know, which of us can have the most But I definitely am in competition with myself to make sure I do as good as I can. Turn with me over to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I don't know if you know this or not, but Paul talks a lot about the glory of God. A lot about it. The Bible's full of the word "glory, but since we don't talk about it much, most people fail to recognize that to be true. Notice what Paul said writing into the Corinthians. Um, let's start reading in verse five. Paul said, "Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves." Paul saying, "I'm not bragging on me, but our sufficiency is of God." Everything I've got to brag about is because God gave it to me. In other words, he's saying everything that that I might have good to say about myself or that I've experienced is because of the wild factors and wild moments of God. I'm just recounting wild moments. Who, speaking of God, verse 6, also has made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. But if the ministration of death, written and engraven in stones was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away, how shall not the ministration of the spirit be rather glorious? Now stop and think about what he's saying. He's saying, you remember what it was like in the Old Testament. You remember what they, the story they told about Moses, about how Moses went up to the mountain uh, in uh, uh, Mount Sinai. He got the Ten Commandments. He came down from the, uh, the mountain with the Ten Commandments and the people couldn't stand to look at his face because his face was shining. Moses seemed to be the only one. that I don't know why, but this strikes me as such an interesting thing. Moses seems to be the only one that didn't know that he was lit up. That's the effect that I think the glory of God should have upon us. It lights us up so that other people see it, but we might not be as aware of what they're seeing as as they are. But the people certainly made him aware of it. They said, Moses, could you cover yourself up? And that's exactly what he did. Now the Bible says, talks about, Paul is talking about, and here's part of the mystery. Paul talks about the glory of the Old Testament. He said if the Old Testament, if just being in the presence of God to get stone tablets without having a change on the inside. Moses wasn't saved. If just being in the presence of God could have an effect on your physical body in that way. Should not the New Testament or the New Covenant, whereby we're made new from the inside, be even more glorious? Now folks, I don't know about you, but I see healing in these scriptures. How could the glory of God have an effect in the Old Testament with people that weren't even born again? People that weren't changed, their lives weren't changed from the inside. They weren't redeemed. How could their bodies be changed under the Old Covenant to such a a degree that their face shined? That's certainly a physical manifestation, isn't it? How could that not include healing for those of us who have been changed from the inside out? And I think this is exactly what Romans 8 is talking about. Paul said, if the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He will quicken your mortal body. He will quicken your mortal body. He'll change your flesh. So he says, if the ministry of death... Talking about Moses and the Ten Commandments. If the ministry of death was glorious... And that was just part time. That's going to be done away with as soon as Jesus comes on the scene. If that was glorious, how can the ministry of life, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, not be more glorious? Verse 9. For the ministration of condemnation be glory. And that's all the law was. All the law did was told you how you couldn't do it on yourself or by yourself. All the law, Paul tells us this the only thing that the law was good for is to show you you needed a savior. You couldn't do it on your own. You needed a savior. Well, why? Because the law kept showing you where you fall short. The law was all about condemnation. The whole purpose for the law was to show you you can't do it. You're falling short here, you're falling short there, you're falling short everywhere so you need somebody to do what you can't do for you he said if the ministry of condemnation was glorious how much more then does the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory this word exceed is pretty tame because it means so far beyond it shouldn't even be compared I mean we could say that There are tribes in Africa maybe that have weapons, but their weapons are spears and rocks. And there are weapons that America has that are nuclear bombs. How do you compare those two? That's what he's saying. If the ministration of the Old Testament was glorious, how much more is the ministry of the New Testament? It can't even be compared. It exceeds in glory. Verse 10, for even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect. Here he's talking about the the lack of comparison. By reason of the glory that excels, that means the present day, modern day, Jesus' day glory. For if that which was done away with was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech and not as moses which put a veil over his face that the children of israel could not steadfastly look to the end of what was a, end of that which is abolished but their minds were blinded for until this day remains the same veil untaken away in the reading of the old testament which veil is done away in christ in other words he's saying the veil was something that he had to hide himself from the people so as not to scare them but for those that haven't received jesus that veil is still on their on their hearts he's talking about the jews specifically he said they still read the old testament but they don't understand The, the thing that takes away the veil is Jesus. Folks, I've got to tell you something. There's still a veil on a lot of people's hearts after they get saved. And until you start renewing your mind to the Word, that veil is not going to be lifted. Doctrine, denominational doctrine, wrong teaching can keep a veil on your heart to keep you out of the glory of God. Paul's going to say so. He's keep t- if we keep reading, he's going to tell us. Verse 15, but even unto this day when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. He's talking about the Jews. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now, the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, notice what he says, he's going to tell us how to grow in the glory of God. He's going to tell you how to manifest the glory of God in your life. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass, the word glass is the word mirror. He's saying the word is a mirror. Folks, the Old Testament was a mirror too. It showed you where you fell short. The New Testament is the mirror that shows you who Jesus is. But we all with open face beholding as in a a glass or a mirror. The glory of the Lord are changed into the same image. From glory to glory. Even as by the spirit of the Lord. So what's he saying? He's saying you can grow in the glory of God. He's saying the thing that does that work in you is the spirit of God but the way that the spirit of God causes you to grow from glory to glory is by looking at yourself in the word by looking at yourself in the word he's telling us very simply if you want to know what the glory of God is all about number one look at Jesus what do we do that how do we do that we see Jesus in his earthly ministry Jesus never came upon a situation that says oh God's not going to do anything about this Never came upon a situation that says, well, you know, some things are too hard for God. Never came upon any situation that he wasn't willing to help if the people would believe. Now, many, many times he put it back over on them. The man whose son was possessed with the devil. He said, Master, if you can do anything, have mercy on me and help me. And Jesus said, it's not a matter of what I can do. If you can believe, all things are possible. He tried to throw it on Jesus. Make it Jesus' responsibility. And Jesus said, all you got to do is believe. It's not up to me. It's up to you. People came to Jesus for healing. And Jesus would ask them. He said, believe you that I can do this? Do you believe I can do this? That must be a real important thing then, folks. Us taking a step of reaching out and believing what we've either heard or what the Bible says about God. Right things that we've heard and accurate de- de- depictions of the Scripture must be real important for God to be able to do His thing. Why? Because you have authority in your life, not God. You have authority in your life. Turn with me to Isaiah 43. I'll close with this. I know time's running out. But turn with me to Isaiah 43. I want you to see something here. Now, you may think from reading some of the the beginning scriptures that this is written about Israel. But it's not, and I'll show you why it's not. Well, uh, let me qualify that. It does have an application to Israel, natural uh, natural Israel, but it has more of an application to the church. Paul talked about this in talking to the Romans. He said, not all Israel is Israel. That seems kind of confusing. What's he saying? He's saying not all the natural descendants of Israel are the Israel that God made promises to. Well, who is then? Those that have made Jesus the Lord of their lives. If you're Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So Isaiah 43 has a a twofold meaning. It has a meaning toward the people of Israel back then, but it also has a meaning toward us, the church now. And I'll prove it to you from verse 1. He says, Isaiah 43, But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by my name. Thou art mine." Folks, when Isaiah was prophesying these things by the Spirit of the Lord, God hadn't redeemed Israel. He hadn't redeemed Israel. He'd given them the law, but that wasn't redemption. He'd given them a ritual sacrifice, but that wasn't redemption. No, the redemption he's talking about is that which belongs to everybody in Christ. Now, Jew or Gentile alike, anybody can be saved by just accepting the sacrifice that Jesus made. But Israel as a group, as a people that he's talking about, has more of a reference to the church than it has to to the natural people, children or natural descendants of Israel, of of Abraham, excuse me. Do you see what I'm saying? So he says, I've redeemed you. I've called you by my name. You're mine. That's a good thing to remember. When you're in the middle of trouble, the devil tells you what he's going to do to you. It's a good thing to say, wait a minute. The Bible says I'm God's. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. That's good news. When you walk uh, and through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When you walk through the fire, thou shalt not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. That's good when you're walking through the fire. That's good to know when it looks like everything's going to swamp you. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the Lord raises up a standard against him. Sometimes it looks like we're going under, doesn't it? And so many people cry out and say, well, how could this happen? I thought the Bible says God will protect me. Well, he will, but it takes faith on your part too. Here's the promise of God. I'll be with you when you walk through the water. I'll be with you when you walk through the fire. For I, verse 3, I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia, and sea before thee. Now here it's talking about some things where natural Israel is concerned. So it, does, it has to have a dual application, Right? Since thou was precious, verse 4, since thou was precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable, and I have loved thee. Therefore will I give men for thee and people for thy life. Fear not, for I am with thee. By the way, verse uh, verse 4 is a real good promise if you're looking for somebody to help. Whatever your situation is. God said, I'd give men to help you. And people for your life. Verse 5, fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east, and gather thee from the west. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from uh, and from far, and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Even everyone that is called by na- my name. Now that had a natural application to Israel, but also has an application to the church. Verse 7, even everyone that is called my name. For, look at this, for I have created him for my glory. I have formed him, yea, I have made him. You know what verse 7 is saying? Verse 7 is saying God created you for one purpose, and that was for his glory, for the glory of God to be in and on you. That's why God created you. God's telling them from the Old Testament, he's giving them hints, but nobody could understand the mystery. How is anybody going to have the glory of God? They know that Adam had the glory of God, but they know that Adam lost the glory of God. How is anybody going to have the glory of God? They couldn't figure it out. That's the mystery that was revealed to Paul. But here's the Bible telling you straight up what you were created for. So many people are looking for their purpose. Well, I just wish I knew why God put me here on the earth. Verse 7, he created you for his glory. He created you for His glory. You know what I found? I found, well maybe I should say it this way. I haven't found anybody that operates in the glory of God in their life that's bored. I haven't found anybody that operates in the glory of God in their life that's without purpose. I can't find anybody that has experienced the glory of God in their life and walks in it that doesn't know what God wants them to do. I can't find anybody that's experienced the glory of God in their life and walks in it regularly that really is seriously tempted to backslide. What does the devil have to offer you that's better than the glory of God? Folks, there is nothing. There is nothing. But if you're still living the life like the children of Israel did in Egypt where you got to water by foot, and boy, every day is a drudge, and you got to go get straw and make bricks, and oh man, this is so tough. And you never know what's going to happen. God might just, you know, want to teach you something and just throw cancer on you. Gosh. That's not the way God works, folks. Paul said, writing to the church, 2 Corinthians chapter, chapter 3? No, chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul said by the Holy Ghost, he said, you're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. That means if sickness attacks me, I have a responsibility because I've been bought and paid for. I have a responsibility to manifest the glory of God and healing in my life. Now, I'm not trying to put anybody else under condemnation, but that's where I'm at. I've got a responsibility toward God because I'm not myself. I'm not my own. I don't belong to me. So if the devil attacks me with sickness, and he does sometimes. If the devil attacks me with sickness, I have a responsibility to my owner, which is God. To manifest, to appropriate the glory of God regarding healing in my body. Because my body belongs to him and not to me. That's how serious this stuff is for me, folks. I I don't know about you. I hope it is, but, you know, everybody makes their own decision. But that's how serious this is for me. I don't have a choice. Now, you understand how I mean that. Certainly, I can choose not to exercise my authority and just roll over and let the devil do whatever he wants to. But what I'm saying is, because I know that I have been bought by the Lord, the choice really isn't mine. I'm the one that makes it. But because I've already committed myself to do what the Bible says to do, that choice is made up front. You understand what I mean by that? See, some people could take that and run off and say, well, see, it's all God, whether God does or doesn't do, it's whatever His will is. It's not what I'm saying at all. Folks, I gotta be honest with you, I don't know how to quit the service. Because <laughs> you could talk about the glory of God forever and still not get it done. But I have to be careful that I don't try to make it a head thing. Because we could just look at scriptures and see what the Bible says about the glory of God, and it'll all be mental knowledge, it'd all be intellectual information, and not really hit your heart. And it's when the glory of God comes alive on the inside of you it's when you see it on the inside are you aware of how many times Paul talks about the riches of his glory he talks about the riches of the glory of your inheritance he talks about the riches of the glory in the saints when Paul talks about the glory of God he talks about benefits of the glory of God Christ in you the hope of glory is God's original plan Oh, Pastor Mike, that's what I want. Pray for me that I'll have the glory of God in my life. Well, that means I'd have to pray for you to get saved. Because every believer has access to it. Every believer has access to it. Every believer. Can I prove that to you? I promise I will quit with this. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. We'll start reading in verse 1. Paul said, therefore, being justified. The Greek literally means therefore having been justified. He proves his point of justification in chapter 4. So he's saying, therefore, we, having been justified by faith, have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's not saying you can't have that. He says you do have that because you've been justified by faith. Now, you may have to take advantage of that. You may have to appropriate that in order to realize it in your life. But that's what's yours already. You don't have to pray for peace. It's yours. By whom? By Jesus. Also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now let's take that apart. What's he saying? He's saying we have access by faith into everything that Jesus did. We have access by faith into the favor of God. Uh, Peace of God does not just mean, you know, a feeling of calm. He's talking about the peace of God, meaning God is on your side in every possible way. Peace has been made once and for all. You need to deal with the thought that maybe you've done something wrong and God's against you. Because the Bible says you have peace with God. Now the mirror you're supposed to look at says you have peace with God. You've already been justified by the, by the blood of Jesus. It's a done deal. It's finished. It's a completed work. It's not something you have to do to make God happy with you now. You are in God's family. He loves you. He is so happy with you. He is thrilled with you because of what he's put in you. Now you may not be living up to everything yet, but he still loves you. He's still on your side. What would your kids have to do for you to be against them? I can't come up with anything. I don't know what my kids could do to me to make me against them. I may not be happy with the way they're living. I may not be happy with what they say. I may not be happy with the way they're acting. But I love them and I'm on their side and I'll do anything for them no matter what. Won't you? Well, how much more is God a better father than us? Or a better parent than us? That's what he's saying. You've been justified already, so you have peace with God God is on your side in everything he's on your side where finances are concerned he's on your side where healing is concerned he's on your side where your family is concerned your family relationships are concerned he's on your side in every area of life he's on your side he's not working against you he's never going to be your problem he's on your side that's what that means and it says it's already happened having been justified we have peace with God Folks, you can't mess that up. Because it comes not because of what you did, but because of what Jesus did. And because we have peace with God through Jesus, by whom, by Him also, verse 2, we have access by faith into this grace. Now, what is grace? Grace Graces are the riches of His glory. Grace is the riches of His glory. It's everything that Jesus purchased for you. That's why he's on your side where healing is concerned. That's why he's on your side where finances are concerned. That's why he's on your side in every area, on your job, in your, in, in, in your, your family situation. He's on your side in every area. By whom also we have access, how? By faith. That means you've got to believe something to be true that may not look like it's like true for you. Faith means you have to accept something to be a reality when it might not look like it's a reality for you. It means you have to accept that you're righteous when it doesn't look like you're living righteously. It means you have to accept that you're healed when it doesn't look like healing is yours. It means you have to accept you've been made rich by the poverty of Jesus when it looks like you don't have enough to get through the week. It means you have to accept by faith unseen things because the Bible says they're yours. And that's how you access every part of the riches of the glory of, his, of, uh, of the Lord. So we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. And now what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to rejoice in the hope of His glory. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now he's not talking about we re- rejoice hoping for heaven someday. He says we rejoice in the hope of His manifested presence. A wow moment to change things around. That's what we ought to be thanking God for. Yeah, Pastor Mike, you're talking a lot about the glory of God, but I don't see much glory of God in my life. Well, start thanking Him for it. Believe what the Bible says to be true and start thanking Him for it. When Jesus showed up in Lazarus, Lazarus had been dead for four days, Mary and Martha are there and they're crying, Oh, He loved you so much. I wish you could have been here and done something about it. Jesus told one of the sisters, I don't remember which one it was, Mary, I think it was. He told Mary... If you will believe, you will see the glory of God. Faith is necessary. That means you have to accept to be true what the Bible says, no matter what it looks like around you. That's the mirror that we look in. This word that tells us how things are. This word that tells us what really was accomplished. This is the mirror we have to look in. And it says, while we behold, as in a mirror... The face of the Lord were changed from glory to glory. What does that mean? That means as we believe it, as we rejoice in it, as we confess it, you'll see more and more of the glory of God in your life. Folks, the Bible says God's coming for a glorious church. Jesus is coming for a glorious church. He's coming for a glorious church, and that, that church is made glorious through the word of God. You know what I keep hearing in my spirit? I keep trying to, keep trying to emphasize this. I, I don't know if I'm ever going to get there or not. So let me just tell you. You know what I keep hearing over and over and over again in my spirit? I keep hearing these words. I'm tired of my people living below the level of my glory. That's what I keep hearing the Holy Ghost say. Now I accept that for me. I'm tired of living at a low level too. And whatever level we're on, we can always go to a higher level. We're changed from glory to glory. That means we can always grow. We can always increase. But that's what I keep hearing the Holy Ghost say. I'm tired of my people living on a low level of glory. Aren't you tired too? Let's all stand together. Let's just lift our hands and worship our Father for a moment. Lord, we worship you.
1: Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. We bless you. We magnify your name. We worship you, Father. Lord, even as Moses said, show us your glory. Show us your
0: glory. We believe, because the word says so, that the glory of God is in us. Father, we pray that through the application of the word the glory of God would be manifest in us in a greater measure than ever before.
1: Glorify your name in us, Lord Jesus. Glorify your name in us, Lord Jesus. Glorify your name in us, Lord Jesus. Sakangri Baby ishakamangra mama mandos hitravoshtakamama manduta lala le bestes eetravoshakramamando rababa mamandundura bagribe hitravoshashakamamandrava shakebi bibbi oravoshta sasasakebbe Oh Lord change us. Cause us to be conformed to your image. Make us who you want us to be, Lord. Make us vessels of honor carriers of the glory of God Lord we worship you we magnify your name bless you Lord Jesus Beth can you come sing let your glory fill this place hallelujah we're going to sing a song let your glory fill this place you know that song
0: but the place we're talking about is not the church. The place I want you to sing it is in you. Let, the glory, let your glory fill this place. Your heart, your life. Lord, that's our prayer. Our prayer is for your glory to fill our lives. Fill us, Lord, with your glory. Fill us that we are, would be carriers of the glory of God. That we might help others. That we might see your glory, your power, your goodness manifest in us and
1: upon us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for using us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for using us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for using us. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Bless you, Lord Jesus bless you Lord Jesus for the time is short saith the Lord the time is short and the work is still yet great to
0: be done it shall be done but it must be done by willing participants it must be done by an army who know who they are in Christ willing to step out and follow the leading of God The work is great and the time is short but it shall be done and as the glory of God is manifested through simple obedience to step out for it is not your power for it is not your work that gets the job done it's simply your obedience to do what the Lord prompts you to do and as the glory of God is manifested first here then there
1: among one and another and another then the glory of God will begin to increase and the glory of God will increase more and more and more and it will spread from a single source to join together with other single sources and the glory of the Lord shall cover the earth That's what I heard the Holy Ghost say. Oh Lord, let us be one of those single sources. Let this place be one of those single sources. We commit to you, Father, that we will obey you. We commit to
0: you, Holy Spirit. <laughs> yeah.
1: That we will give ear to your voice. We commit to you, Lord Jesus that we will follow and obey your voice to be a help and a blessing to others to be a testimony of your goodness your power and your great love in Jesus name in Jesus name
0: can you agree with that say I commit
1: myself to follow the voice of God amen amen praise the Lord
0: it's been good to be together amen there's a precious presence of the Holy Ghost in this place and it's increasing and I I don't know how to describe it I'm not going to preach again But I have in my heart so much increase. Increase. I believe there's going to be increase in every area. It's time for the God in us to be revealed. Amen? Amen. You got anything? Well, all right. Say it with me. The Lord is
1: good. And His mercy endures forever. God bless you. We love you. You're dismissed.